This is the voice of Carnage, and you are listening to Carnage Cast. Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 22 of Carnage Cast. We leap a ways back in time for Interview with the Gamer to when we ran into Brad Yoni, game designer and president of Carnivore Games at Carnage in Wonderland in November 2011. Brad's a tireless GM on the New England convention scene, running adventures for his role-playing games Now Playing, and most recently, The Unexplained. Brad recaps his weekend at Carnage, the doings at Carnivore Games, gives us a peek into the future books for The Unexplained, and a future science fiction endeavor. Then, in autopsy of the game, Joe the Broadly Red tells us about the day after Ragnarok. It's a setting written by Kenneth Height in which, in the final days of World War II, the Germans summon the World Serpent. Destroyed by atomic fire, the serpent's venom spills on Earth and poisons the land as the remnants of civilization try to cobble together some semblance of daily life. It's two-fisted alternate history with a twist of sorcery and weird science. And for those of you looking forward to Carnage Noir this coming November, the game submission form is already up on CarnageCon.com. If you've got a game to run, that's the place to go to get it on the schedule. Here's Brad Young. Now. Interview with the Gamer. Hi, I'm standing here with Brad Yoni, president of Carnivore Games. He's relaxing before his afternoon uh, slot here at Carnage on Sunday. Hi, Brad. How are you? Good. Doing fine. How's the convention going for you so far today? It's going great. Um, all my games have been pretty well stocked and had a great time. What game are you running? I'm running The Unexplained, which is uh, my latest product. Can you explain the unexplained? It's um, a role-playing game that's uh, very story-driven, and it's all about paranormal investigation, kind of modern-day, real-life paranormal investigation. What inspirations were you drawing on for that? Personal experiences and um, just a, a fascination with with ghosts and and Bigfoot and such. And are the players looking for Bigfoot this year? This year they've been looking for UFOs and fighting zombies, actually, and um, they're about to uh, look for some ghosts. Are they looking for ghosts anywhere in particular? I think I looked this one up in the book and recognized the description. Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's a fictional house in Vermont. Cool. Have you had any standout moments so far in role-playing uh, at the convention this weekend? This weekend? Um... <laughs> Well, yeah, uh, I, I ran, I ran two back-to-back, um, you know, a, a two-part zombie apocalypse game with the unexplained, and there were some great moments with uh, trying to drive over some zombies with a van that went really badly. <laughs> badly for who? Um, badly for the players, actually. They crashed and uh, almost got eaten. <laughs> <laughs> well, that sounds like a win for the zombies, so I'm okay with that. Yeah. How long have you been publishing as Carnivore? Um, since 2003. Uh, that, that's when I started developing my first game, in, which released in 2004. And what's that one called? That one's called Now Playing. It's a, a role-playing game that's about role-playing TV shows. You can take any, any TV show and turn it into a role-playing game and run it. And it also helps you as a GM, run your game using the same pacing 
as as a TV show, so that it would actually feel like the show. What sort of mechanics do you include to accomplish that? For for the basic game system, I use uh, fudge uh, as its root, and um, and for the uh, pacing of the TV show, I, I studied TV script writing, and I borrowed some uh, some techniques that were used that are used in TV script writing for for um, for creating the pacing and making sure that you always end on a high on a high point before c- cutting to a commercial and and so on, so that you can run your show in you know the shows run in four acts with with each act kind of having its own climax and so i i use some of the same techniques to to run my games in four acts so after now playing what came next that would be the unexplained so unexplained is game two for carnivore yes. game two and it, it uses the same base system just Evolved a bit and made to better to better focus on the um, to better support the setting. And what's next? That's a good question. I'm right now. I'm developing some supplements for the unexplained, but I do have a uh, hard sci-fi setting that I that I've been working with. So I'm hoping to hoping to get that out eventually. Can you give us a name on that? Um, I have a working title. It's not it's not the final name, but um, it's called Space 2150, and it's it's hard sci-fi with colonizing the um, the solar system. Cool. So if uh, listeners wanted to find you on the on the convention circuit or read more about your games, what could they do? Well, they could go to carnivoregames.com, and I have a Facebook page for the unexplained which would be the unexplained RPG. Those are the key locations. Brad, thanks for talking with me. Uh, Thank you for coming to Carnage, and I hope you have a great rest of the weekend. Thank you very much. It's been great. Next, we take you to an autopsy of a game. Hi everyone, welcome to Autopsy of a Game. In this installment, we're talking with Joe about the role-playing supplement The Day After Ragnarok. Hi Joe, how are you? Hi Tyler, doing great tonight, thanks. So, what's the one-sentence overview of Day After Ragnarok? This is Conan the Barbarian in uh, set on modern Earth after the Midgard Serpent has been summoned and then destroyed by atomic fire. Well, that's delightful. <laughs> <laughs> it makes me want to play it anyway. I know, it's a You've clearly honed your pitch. Yeah, you'd think. Hmm? <laughs> you'd think so. I just came. I just came up with that. Oh, that should be on the wiki. <laughs> As just sort of a um, a general introduction to the game, if people are not familiar with the day after Ragnarok, and after all, it's not a very it's not a very large press thing. It is a role playing supplement that's. Um, I think was initially written for Savage Worlds, but also has rules I know for the hero system. Mm-hmm. And I think there may be D20 rules written as well at the, uh, at this point. Oh, I hadn't seen the D20s. I, I, believe, I believe I'm correct about that. I think at least some of the supplement stuff has, has D20 stats for it. The Day After Ragnarok is written by Kenneth Height, who is probably my single favorite gaming writer. There is just, there's something I absolutely 
I absolutely get about his games. I think we seem to really, I think we seem to really dig on the same things. We're really excited by the same kinds of things in gaming. Part of that is just our just an interest in history, both history as it actually happened in all of its you know sort of odd and fascinating and messy glory, and also all those things by well well what if that was true? Maybe the things that people used to think once upon a time. You know what if what if the streets in China were paved with gold and there were people there who you know hopped around on one giant foot? Things like that. Like wouldn't that be a great story? That wouldn't that be a great background? Mm-hmm. Um, the the central premise of Day After Ragnarok is to take the sort of um, pulp fantasy sword and sorcery adventures of uh, Conan the Barbarian and King Cull and those characters and bring that feel to to our world to Earth just after the end of World War II. So there's there's some tech uh, still around, but it, mostly it's like a kind of a free wheeling, free booting world with, uh, you know, adventure around every corner and, you know, the uh, sorcerous minions to fight and, uh, you know, nasty, nefarious cities to infiltrate and, and interesting things to steal. Where the game diverges from history is uh, in the ending days of World War II as it becomes clear that Germany is about to lose. Hitler and a secret cabal succeed in summoning the Midgard Serpent up from, you know, from wherever the Midgard Serpent gets summoned from, I suppose. It comes and it smashes into American convoys and just just lays waste to, to some of the Allied armies. And as things are starting to disintegrate, President Truman uh, gives instructions to fly a nuclear bomber directly into the serpent's eye which destroys it, but it still means there's this trillion-ton serpent that is now falling um, across the Earth in two great coils, and it crushes much, much of Europe. Some of the world is, is destroyed completely. Sorceress um, emanations, mi- miasma, is it miasma or miasma? I never know. Your choice. Um, <laughs> okay, I'm going to say miasma. And then I might be embarrassed if that turns out to be wrong. That gets into the atmosphere and rains over much of the world. This poisons crops, um, leads to you know sort of the the rise of strange and unknowable beasts, uh, especially in places like the the American plains. Um, uh, to the east of the serpent, the uh, Soviet Union is much less affected by all this. They have their own. Uh, issues to deal with as uh, giants are awoken by the serpent's fall upon the earth and they they sort of arise and start marching to the cities you know after after millennia of sleep I, I suppose one of the things that I like best about it as a role-playing background one of the things that I think works the best is as as you start to get into more and more modern day games there's a lot of ways in which for all of the power and technologies the PCs have, it puts more and more restrictions on the, on them. I really saw this a lot when I was attempting to run um, both a, a cyberpunk campaign and then a hard science fiction campaign at another point. That if I if I should ever go online to uh, to a forum, for instance, and ask, you know, well, you know, what, how would this happen in the adventure? 
the the majority of opinion was always well that couldn't happen because such and such a you know powerful corporation or powerful government would simply stop the PCs from doing that they would you know intercept their communications or they would um, or they would spend a lot of money to send assassins after them or something like that and it, it came to feel like the the PCs didn't have a lot of power whereas uh, one of the things in that I like about um, Day After Ragnarok is how th there are opportunities not only for adventure everywhere, but that the, the world as a cohesive whole really isn't there anymore. There are pockets of civilization. There, there is still something left of the British Empire in places like Australia or South Africa. Mm -hmm. But if you, if you form, you know, your you know, your cat burglary ring or mercenary company and and you have to hightail it out of South Africa, you know, all you have to do is make it to, uh, you know, to Brazil or to India or to the, uh, or to the coast of Texas. And, and, and that, that's all far behind you. There's just, there's not enough connection. There's not enough communication for, for there to be a sort of worldwide manhunt that closes in on the PCs like that. So there's always new opportunities to, to explore and new places to go. Mm-hmm. And that opens up the possibility for uh, wild rumor again, because you don't have journalists writing down what a what's actually happening. That's true. Yes, um, I, I think one of the things that I, I quite liked about the core book is that one of the examples that they give was, of, of course, a lot of things have simply been destroyed. One of those, uh, pretty much all of the eastern seaboard of the United States was hit by a big tidal wave, and I felt perfectly free to tell that to my uh, to my players. The the eastern United States was destroyed by a big tidal wave, and then they knew as much as I did at that point. You know, there's there, there's not any kind of detail of details of you know, well, it it destroyed New York, but didn't quite make it to Philadelphia. Nobody knows, and that's to some extent up to the GM. If they wanted to find out what happened, they would have to actually go there themselves and see. Mm -hmm. And that's when you start filling in the the spaces around what's been written. Exactly, exactly. And I could sort of fill them in with you know with whatever I want, and I I I enjoy that part of GMing quite a bit. Right, because you like you mentioned earlier, you've got the uh, the well, what what would have happened if uh, right right. And while while I I I feel very fortunate in my in my group of players in this and and I I don't have to deal with this at this point in my gaming career but all of us have had those players who are who are really out to that they just want to win they want to tweak stuff and win so if the game is going to be about monster hunting they're going to be a um you know a sort of uh, a Rambo cryptozoologist with both, you know, a giant, uh, you know, a, a giant machine gun and encyclopedic knowledge of all the monsters that are out there. And I can tell them, well, nobody really knows what all the monsters are that are out there. But folks know that there are monsters, but you know, th there's no, there, there's no textbook that you can go and look this stuff up in. There's new stuff showing up all the time. Mm -hmm. And I remember that was one of the hooks that really interested me when I when I read through the. Uh the source book was uh, the idea of being a scholar who's going out there to rediscover the world because everything's changed. Right, right. I, I think one of the lines that, that, that really grabbed me was for uh, people who might want to play a scientist, for instance, was saying, you know, the, the most important thing in human history just happened right here while you're alive and you survived it and you had the chance to go study it. Particularly the ones who go uh, scavenging things from the worm. Right, right. Because the idea here is that the there are these two, you know, 
great coils of the serpent that are you know stretching far far up into the into the atmosphere and then they stretch you know hundreds of kilometers across you know it's it's, it's completely impassable and there are but you know there's 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 uh, there's gold in them thar hills figuratively where where gold is strange monsters living inside caverns in the serpent and you know uh, venom and blood with strange you know energy and psychoactive properties that made me giggle with such glee when I read that because it's like he inserted a dungeon crawl into it. <laughs> and I hadn't even thought about it that way, but you could completely do that. It's like you go down in the you go down in the serpent, and there's all sorts of antibodies and crud in there. Right, right. I, I hadn't thought about it in terms of a dungeon crawl. That's that's a really good point. That 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 had had completely escaped me. That that's one way to read that 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 idea. That's sort of the the, the way the, the the way the world ended. What um, mm-hmm. what's been happening since uh, the worm fell? What's been happening since the worm fell is is uh, a few things. Probably the Soviet Union is the least changed. They're in they're in better shape sort of than anybody in a lot of ways. They've still got Stalin in charge, and this is Stalin in his later years as he gets more and more paranoid and is is you know. He's his own worst enemy, and he's the worst enemy of a whole lot of other people, including probably most of his subjects at this point. But they've got food to eat, and they've got you know no real, no serious threats. You know, for the first time in in Russia's history, they're not going to be invaded by Europe because most of it's not there anymore, and what is there doesn't have any easy way to cross. You know, to to to, to, to you know to get over a giant serpent to get to them. Um, Japan uh, was sort of saved by the, the end of the the end of the serpent. They were also losing the war badly, but were able to, you know, with everything else that was going on in the world, they were able to sign a peace treaty with Britain. And Japan's trying to fight their way back. They're trying to build that navy back up. They've got their spies again all over the world. So they're. Um, Depending on how you look at things, both both um, Japan and the Soviet Union are Soviet Union are sort of twin evil empire sort of figures in in, in this world. They could turn up anywhere at and at any time. Mm-hmm. There are parts of the U.S. that are still functioning. Um, California and uh, the rest of the West Coast, Texas, um, although it doesn't really acknowledge the sovereignty of the rest of the United States at this point. Um, Hawaii is still there, uh, but but most of the the you know the former Deep South and the Great Plains and on up into Canada is it's it's completely barbarian territory. You know it's this is you know this is you know sort of picked howling in the hills, but it's you know there's there's no hills. It's just sort of the the plains of Iowa. Mm-hmm. And the picks used to be corn farmers. Yes, yes, and the picks used to be corn farmers. Um, not anything that's that's an enormous part of the world, but something which I, I find really interesting and, and, and tempting is this um, this idea of the Iowa Soviet. Uh, the, the Ken Hythe, the, the writer of the book, um, noticed that an important figure who who might have survived at this point was this um, uh, sort of assistant agricultural secretary under the presidential administration, and he had these strong communist leanings. In this background, he showed back up, and and somehow there's this part of Iowa that alone in America is can feed all its people and grow great grain, and they've all become committed communists all of a sudden, and nobody knows why. <laughs> Do you have any theories on that? 
I, I th- th- there's all sorts of theories, but I'd I'd rather not share them at this point because I uh, I'm not sure what I'm going to use yet. Okay. <laughs> there's there's there, there's there's nothing that's sort of um you know definitively canon in the book that's very much left up to the GM's choice, and you know I I don't know. Have to see. That's a that's a hallmark of height, and this book is uh he throws out a lot of great nouns, and then he's like, and then you can write the story behind the noun. <laughs> I hadn't thought of it specifically in terms of nouns, I guess. Well, um, I'm thinking in particular of Science City 17. Oh, right, right. <laughs> I see what you mean there. It's just a dot Science- on the map. Yes, yeah, Science City 17. Ooh, what's that? What happened to the other 16? <laughs> yeah, that's another point. Is this the only one we know about? Are all the others gone? Hmm. Or did they just skip to 17 to indicate its importance? <laughs> I, I don't know. Difficult to say. An, an important prime number, 17. Mm-hmm. One thing that, that I'll, I'll say about kind of the, the, the feel of the story, while it's certainly... I think anybody who's familiar with, with, with pulp could play in this game and, um, and enjoy this game. I, I would urge anybody to whom this sounds interesting to, to, to read a couple of the Conan stories if you hadn't, if, if, you've, not, if you've not done so. They're, um, they're easy to find. They're, they're all over the place. And they're, they're just some of the best examples, I think, of, um, of American fantastic fiction. They're, they're absolutely exciting. And they, they have just this, this great feel of a mighty hero who's not just the sort of, you know, big brawny Arnold Schwarzenegger guy. The hero isn't just mighty because he's, you know, huge and strong and, and, and from the country. He's, he's very crafty. He's very adaptable um, in, in much the same way that I think a good PC should be mm-hmm. uh, smart and adaptable. Speaking of Conan, just to sort of illustrate the links beto- between the source material and Day After Ragnarok, how mm-hmm. would you sort of render Conan in, in the Ragnarok world? Where would he be from? What would Aside from being a barbarian, sure, yeah. I mean, he he could be from a lot of different places. Um, I think what would probably map the best would be somebody who's fairly young, who has come from some place like the um, the the American rural Midwest, who would you know would have been you know maybe uh, an older child or young teenager who didn't have much experience with the world as it existed anyway and then all of a sudden the world became very much you know just you know surviving by your own cunning and your own skill with a weapon Mm -hmm. there are there are there are, are plenty of other places that are you know you know, probably less civilized in 1945. That you that you could you could do equally well. You could take, you know, you could easily take somebody from you know a tribe in the Amazon or in uh, the Congo in Africa somewhere, or in the 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 jungles of Burma, and and make a, a similar sort of character. And they're they're actually pretty well suited to surviving in the new world. Exactly, mm-hmm. because because they hadn't become you know they hadn't become dependent on interlinked technologically advanced civilization they, they they had they had they were using other solutions to the the human problem of how do i stay alive sort of the time honored solutions uh, yes exactly not always the most efficient ones but 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 ones that certainly work for people who want to learn more about conan and the and the, the the fantasy pulp genre what are some authors and stories you recommend they look up 
Uh, the, the number one would certainly be Robert E. Howard, the man who created the Conan character. There are some other uh, good authors in the field. Um, Fritz Lieber did some great stuff starting in the late 1950s, I believe. And there was an author named uh, Lynn Carter as well. It can be a little bit confusing in tracking down Conan's story sometimes because a lot of these sort of would semi-lapse into the public domain or be adopted by somebody else and extended by somebody else into a longer story. A couple of the stories that I would recommend are uh, The Tower of the Elephant. It's about a, a jewel kept in a in a, a tower by a mighty sorcerer and Conan decides, I'm going to go steal that because that's the kind of guy he is. And there are, uh, but there are some, some very interesting plot twists from there. It's not just, it's not, not your simple magical heist sort of story. And there was also my very favorite, it was the first one I ever read, was called Red Nails. It was one of the longer ones that, uh, that he wrote, I think. And that one's got, it's got, it's got, you know, steaming jungles and it's got a walled city and dinosaurs and very Big lesbian undertones of poison <laughs> and yeah, all, all 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 kinds of stuff. A- ancient kind of vaguely Central American feeling gods. Um, it, it's also one of those where uh, Conan does have a, a companion for much of the story of a, of a woman named Valeria. Mm-hmm. So it's it, it's particularly good from that uh, from the the role player's point of view because unlike a lot of heroic fiction, you know, our, your typical role-playing people is, you know, it's a group. It's not just one or two people. It's, you know, it's not just, you know, one person there playing a mighty hero. It's, it's an ensemble piece. Right. And it's good, to see, it's, 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 it's good to see those situations where you have a hero working in tandem with, 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 with others to accomplish their goals. That happens, you know, reasonably often, as self-reliant a guy as Conan can be. Mm-hmm. I would be remiss if I didn't talk about... Um, about the great tradition of Conan in the comic books here on a, a podcast like this. He appeared in um, some black and white titles like Savage Sword of Conan in the 70s. There were also some great color numbers uh, usually drawn by Roy Thomas. More recently, Dark Horse has been putting out some books written by uh, Kurt Busiek, who is, I, I think, one of the, the very best uh, comic writers ever, not just of contemporary times. Mm-hmm. And he does, does a fantastic job and works with some great writers on those stories as well. Should talk a little bit in, about uh, uh, Ophitech in The Day After Ragnarok. That's this idea that there's now, you know, we've got this Midgard serpent there. It's this, this, you know, giant new thing lying across the world, and it turns out it has all sorts of supernatural properties. You can take its, um, you know, you can take its blood or venom and distill a, a fuel that burns super fast and super hot to, you know, make giant revved up engines. And there are these strange beasts that live inside, and there's, you know, all sorts of kind of vaguely described compounds that your mad scientists to use to create drugs or, you know, special guns or armor or jetpacks or, you know, whatever, whatever you need for the plot that, uh, that week, I suppose, is really the answer. And, and that's part of the whole built-in stuff for PCs to do is we need you to go out and find this substance or, yeah, go steal somebody's prototype from Science City 17. Mm-hmm. Sure, yeah, from Science Station 17. Oh, okay, we're going to Science Station 17. All right. Fantastic. I can knock that one off my list. <laughs> right, right. The Midgard Serpent effect on the world also extends out to uh, not just what people are making of the remains, but the way the venom seeped into the land. It's poisoning, blighting crops, right, twisting creatures. Right. Yeah, yep, that's right. There's, um, th- there's suddenly people who have sort of... Um, 
who are developing mental powers. People in, in Russia are develop them, developing them a lot more as the Communist Party has noticed this and is, you know, rigorously studying it and, and, um, and sort of, you know, training up this ability in people. There are people who, you know, only a few short years ago might have been thought of as, you know, just kind of, you know, wacko, overly religious people, and now they, they really do have powers against those strange things that come out of the woods at night. And there are, you know, there are magic spells, you know, when, whether that's, you know, somebody who's a, you know, a, a sort of, you know, vaguely unsettling uh, Cambridge student, you know, who is a, a, dis- a disciple, of, disciple of Alistair Crowley, or whether that's, you know, a, 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 a medicine man out in the wilds of Siberia. All of a sudden, those, those things they're doing are really working. So it's not just one particular style in Day After Ragnarok, it's that a lot of existing traditions are suddenly effectual? Exactly right. Now, we haven't talked a lot about the rules yet. How does that uh, play out in Savage Worlds? where you have all these different traditions. I am fairly new uh, to Savage Worlds. I've played it a few times. This is the first time that I've, I've ever run something in it. Um, mm-hmm. The way it plays out with, with the rules in, in a lot of ways is um, it's one of those things that anybody who's played, for instance, um, you know, GURPS or Hero System would be familiar with, which is, you know, what, whatever you want to call it, that's, that's really kind of a special effect. You know, it's, it's, its effect in game is that it, you know, heals people a certain amount or that you can summon something that is, you know, that is, you know, X amount powerful. And it's, you know, it's not really important in the rules, whether that's done by, you know, by praying to Allah or reading an ancient Kabbalistic incantation or, um, you, you know, or saying, you know, abracadabra, bibbidi bobbidi boo Is that what you like to say? Uh, that's not what I would like to say, no. I, I, I think that would, that would kind of ruin the moment, personally, in, would, a, in a real pulp game. It would yeah, undercut yeah, the drama. Okay. In a podcast, it's okay. Okay. Um. So you've uh, you you've run day after Ragnarok at least once or twice, and I, I have yes. And you're building to a campaign. I'm building to a campaign now. Yes. Um. I'm building rapidly to a campaign as I found out yesterday that I'm GMing for the first time this Sunday. Oh wow. Um, Yes, yes. The, the the one shot that I ran was a thing with pre-generated characters just to, to kind of get an idea of whether my players would like the world and would like the background. Mm-hmm. That was set in um, what it's, uh, what it's called the, the mayoralties, these, these uh, city-states in the American Midwest. Um, the, the, the PCs there were, were members of a, a community that was sort of in trouble, in danger from a larger city, and they had to go to the, um, you know, they had to, to, to brave the overgrown highways of, uh, of Indiana to get to, to Terre Haute to find this, um, some sort of secret weapon that the government had been working on, and they had to get there before their foes got there. And who were their foes in this? Uh, their foes in this were the, um, were the uh, the Illinois National Guard, the, the, just called the Chicago Guard at this point. Um, Chicago is one of the the biggest and most powerful of these of, of these places. And uh, I mean, essentially, what happened in this part of the world was just there wasn't enough food to go around. So the the people who were left, the cities and communities that are left, are the ones who were able to 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 be tough and push other people to the wall to get food when there wasn't enough of it. This, these are pre-gen characters. Is this a, a, a scenario you ginned up or found somewhere? 
This was a, a scenario that I, I had done on myself. Um, one thing that, that I should mention, it's certainly not the first thing, this, such, this sort of thing has appeared in a game book. There is a random adventure generator in the back of the Day After Ragnarok book that I found really enjoyable, I have to say. When I was sort of trying to convince people to give this game a try, uh, they were going, "Well, I'm, you know, what, what sort of things would our characters be doing? I'm not sure what, what, what would be doing there." So, I got out, you know, a few dice and got out the book and came up with three, um, you know, three, four example pre-generated plots. Mm-hmm. Would you like me to share those with you? Oh, please. Characters are residents of the township of Eaton, Tennessee, a small, entirely black township in the deep south you've heard that there's law and order in texas and more importantly there are things to trade there but there's no safe way to get there so the pcs are volunteered to find the best route to texas through poison farmlands and the ape-sized fly-by-night gargoyle things flying around in the evening and the hillbilly families who guard the the ozarks and you have to get there before the clan confederacy of birmingham can complete their road and that one didn't fly None of these were even intended as, you know, this is this is going to be the adventure. This, this was just sort of, this was literally done in a couple of minutes of rolling some dice, look at this, and go, all right, well, where, where could I set that sort of plot in the world? Oh, okay. There was also one with um, set in the Sudan, where even by the sort of lax standards of the current world, it, it really is hell on earth. This is right next to one coil of the serpent's body. There's psychoactive venom leaking everywhere. And anybody who gets too near these glowing pools is mutate, mutated or driven mad. And there's this cult of serpent worshippers called the Sons of Apep. And they want to use the poison to reopen a gate between the worlds. And the closest sort of outpost of civilization is the British colonial office in Kenya. And they're not, you know, they're not having any of it. So they send some soldiers and, you know, what, mad scientists and perhaps ex-spies and any other adventuresome types around to go and stop this. Hopefully with positive results. Uh, hopefully with positive results, yes, yes. I had an idea for people who might want to, you know, play sort of more normal people who are less traveled because I've, I've run into those situations before in gaming, in gaming where people go, you know, wow, that's, that's kind of overwhelming. I don't want to try to think about that much. Can I just play some local schlub who gets draws and drawn into things? Right, right. And, and, and learn things gradually. So um, there are the um, Burma is still a British colony at this point, but it, it, you know, uh, is bordering on Japanese lands. And while there's technically a ceasefire, that's getting more and more afraid. So my idea was to have uh, sort of negotiations to, to cement the armistice further there and that there would be, um, just because, you know, the, the world's a dangerous enough place without us humans shooting at each other. I had the idea to have the PCs here at these negotiations just be government clerks or army privates or native servants or just, you know, other flunkies there, you know, musicians or cooks or something like that. Mm -hmm. We're there when the talks start, but there are different factions there that have scores to settle. There's people who have old enemies, both enemies of, you know, their particular empire or perhaps personal enemies, you know, maybe somebody who used to be a POW. And there are various people who are trying to you know, who are trying to either push these negotiations into chaos and maybe even some who are trying to actually make them work and just, you know, get, get, the, get the, the PCs, give them, you know, some sort of, you know, minor agenda perhaps, even if that's only stay alive and, you know, and, and see what happens when the sparks start to fly. 
those were, those were uh, seeds you threw out to to show the players what could potentially happen in a Ragnarok That's game. Exactly right. Yes. And you went with uh, the competing mayoralties looking for that secret weapon in Indiana. Right, right. It's it's it's, it's there. There's a race to the MacGuffin. Go and get the MacGuffin. Is that going to play into the campaign you're launching this weekend? It's not actually. No, I wasn't sure if it if it uh, if it would at first or not. But we we decided that the you know people have a lot more fun when they can make their own characters, and the with this group the the players don't tend to do as well with you know the the really open ended sword and sorcery of. You know, you are you know you are mighty, and you have some weapons and a full tank of gas and half a you know uh, and you know it's nighttime when you're wearing sunglasses. What do you want to go do? That they tend to want to be more mission driven. Mm-hmm. So the campaign that I'm starting this weekend, they are going to be working for Rhodes University in South Africa. They're going to be a sort of university troubleshooting squad since this um, you know sort of really sort of very average university has suddenly found itself become the most prominent academic institution left in the world. <laughs> and the British Empire is, you know, they're, they're, essentially they're just, they're not going to let it be, they're, they're not going to let its fate just be left to, you know, to the college faculty and administration. I'm sure you can understand that. Yes. If if your you know particular employer suddenly became vital to national security, they, they probably wouldn't just leave everybody in charge there who's in charge right now. Yeah, they'd certainly be collecting a lot of uh, ex-survivors uh, from wherever they happen to be and <laughs> exactly. concentrating them. Yes, yes. The PCs at this point are a former member of the French Foreign Legion who managed to um, to escape the uh, some of the fighting as, as things disintegrated in North Africa, and he's now down here and working for the British Crown. Um, we have a woman from Australia who grew up in the in the outback there and who is uh, now making her living as a sort of wilderness guide expert, you know, in in um, in, in survival and uh, knows a bit about the the strange, dangerous beasties out there in um, out there in the jungles. Mm-hmm. Um, my lovely wife Sari is playing a. Uh, an educated young man from a uh, from an African family, actually a, a, a Nubian who was down here studying in South Africa when his you know home and family were crushed by the by the serpent fall, and he's going to be a um, uh, a, a biology graduate student actually, and so all of a sudden, no, oh, wait, what now? <laughs> so, uh, but so most of the biologists are dead, and and I have to study that. Okay, so you can just make it up, and no one would know. Right, 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 and we also we have another, um, uh, I think, probably fairly upper class uh, English woman who worked for the Special Operations Executive in the Second World War, doing commando things behind enemy lines, mm-hmm. being all infiltrating and 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 blowing things up. <laughs> yeah, I think I saw that in the uh, the wiki RSS the other day. Yes, yes. Because you are using a, a wiki to describe all this, as I recall. I am. Yes, yes. It's um, it's one of those things that uh, that our, our our game group uh, has used, at least in a minimal sense, uh, for years. Just it's a good way to keep track of characters. You can, after an adventure, go in and make quick notes. All right, and this is what we're trying to do here, so nobody forgets. With all with all the you've you've gone into about uh, day after Ragnarok, are, is there a a particular type of role player that you would pitch this to that you you think should check it out 
Um, I think it would be good for somebody who is perhaps um, interested in in a pulp game is like you know maybe excited by by cliffhangers but is is maybe feeling feeling a little bit over um, you know you know uh, just maybe feeling a little bit past you know I've, you know I've, I've done those Indiana Jones style adventures of you know of, you know jetting across the world and and you know fighting Nazis and and digging up artifacts and and, and things like that it's a game that can have a similar sort of feel in a world that's 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 close enough to our own that we can identify with it, but at the same time, re- really different in some important ways. Right. It's it, the the world isn't going to reset at the end of, once you save the MacGuffin. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, the other thing is I think that the uh, anybody who's interested in sort of historical gaming and or or even you know the, that's a fairly small category of people. Who are interested in um, in war type role playing could uh, would enjoy this sort of thing too because it's it's a background in which you can reasonably have uh, modern technology, but still have you know your sort of small um, PC driven missions in which to have military adventures mm-hmm. that can start to feel strained if you try to put that in the setting of World War II or Vietnam or something like that. In the sense that everyone gets run th- in, in true war, no one's going to last for long. Uh, in, in, in the sense that in in real war, you don't really get off to you don't get to go off and kind of do your own thing, right? Um, you know, and when that happens, you you sort of become the A team at that point, and you know you're you're not you're you're not really part of the 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 of the the military with that ability to you know have logistics and supplies and and you know and and go into mighty battles because you've you there's there's other stuff you have to do. Sorry, orders from on high. It's not up to you. Yeah, it's there. There's a lot less waiting around and yes yes so who publishes day after ragnarok and where can they find it if they want to learn more you can find it from atomic overmind press um atomic uh, atomic overmind.com is the website if you are the sort of person who enjoys uh pdf products i believe they are available from drive rpg.com at this point there is um there is the main book and there's a a couple of supplements at this point there's um i know there's um memphis gateway to the poison lands is going to be out soon i think there's a guide to the the clan confederacy in birmingham as well mm-hmm. and i think there's a couple short articles like on sten guns and such i believe you're correct yes and uh most of this is published for the savage world system uh, yes, it's also available for Hero System as well. Yes, and I will say personally that I, t- I really enjoy the, the Hero System version's form factor because it's a full 8.5 and, and by 11 book. As, as, as I would like to take a look at that just to see, you know, is, there, is, is, the, is the art bigger? Is there more stuff? Is there, is there, are there more things to look at? There are so many more things. It's a hero book. <laughs> they are nothing. They're nothing if not hefty. Let's face it. Yes, there's so many more stats than a, than a Savage World character. <laughs> And you know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. I think that's uh, that kind of depends on your own personal creed, I suppose. Yeah. It, either way, uh, the material itself can go wherever you like it to go in terms of mechanics. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I, it would. You would have no no problem adapting this to something like um, something like GURPS or Fudge or D20 Modern or something like that. Mm-hmm. All right, Joe. Thank you so much for coming on and uh, talking about the day after Ragnarok. Sure. You're very welcome. Last, but not least. 
Alright everyone, that's episode 22 of Carnage Cast. Thanks to Brad and Joe, a couple of talented GMs, for talking about role-playing games with us. And remember, if you're looking to run some games at Carnage Noir this November, the game submission form is up on the website. Head over there and get your information in. Remember, if you've got a comment or a question, you can send us an email, leave a comment on the website, join the Facebook group, and if you like the show, give us a thumbs up! Rate us on iTunes, we'd really appreciate it. Until next time, good gaming everyone! You've been listening to Carnage Cast, a production of NNEG LLC. All rights reserved. For more information, visit us at www.carnagecon.com.